Well, good morning, church. And uh, I heard some weird things back there. I heard my email address get thrown out. I don't know what that was. But, you know, um, use it wisely. All right, you can keep it. I'm going to be changing it after the service. Um, I'll be changing it to Matt E. Matt E. at OCEC. So if you need to get a hold of me, you can get a hold of me there. Um, the... Uh, you never want to find yourself in a situation where you are in a car following my car and you need to know where I'm going. You need to know where we're going. You don't want to find yourself in that situation because I take this weird uh, joy from if I'm in like a sort of a, you know, oh, follow us there situation and I'm driving and I'm like, they really aren't going to get there <clears throat> without me. I will absolutely like exploit that just for my own entertainment. And so I will, you know, go take every turn, I'll I'll take every roundabout, I'll I'll do very strange things. And I love like kind of like saying out loud to myself, like, okay, okay, they're starting to get a little bit confused now, I think. Okay. And then you do enough turns, like four right turns or whatever, you know, enough of those, you're like, you know what, okay, I think they're starting to figure it out, and then you do a bunch of weird three-point turns, they have to follow you on that, and I just find it so entertaining, <clears throat> and my wife, Ellie, just like hates it when I do this, she's like, oh, you're not doing this again, are you, and she will never like have to follow me to get anywhere, she'll make sure, you know, she like never has to, but uh, I, I find so much enjoyment, I don't know why, out of this, because I know at this point, once they realize like, oh no, we're stuck here, we're stuck with this, like we've got to follow him, but we don't know what he's going to make us do, where we're going to go. And, uh, and there's something about that that I find so entertaining. If you've ever been in a situation where you are like, you have to follow the person in front of you in order to get somewhere, in order to go somewhere, and they're driving way too fast, you get lost, you get separated from them, then you're totally stuck. It's a little bit different in this day and age, I guess, because we have phones with maps on them. And, um, but I think that there is something about that feeling of being totally dependent on like somebody else and going, if I don't keep tracking with this person, then I am, I'm gonna be lost, right? I don't know where I'm gonna go. Uh, there's like casual examples of that that we experience in our lives all the time. And then there are really, really heavy and serious examples of that, of what it, of what it is to be in a situation where you really, uh, you are looking to the person that you're following for real guidance, and without them, you're going to be truly lost. Um, it's hard to think of, um, of, a, of an example that seems more significant than that uh, of an example that involves our own spiritual lives, right? The idea of, um, in the church, uh, the idea of having people that we look to, that we follow, whether it's someone who's discipling us, a person who's teaching uh, us in the Sunday school class, uh, whether you're a child or you're an adult, uh, a person who's a small group leader, uh, a person who's a pastor. Um, th- those people in our lives have that role. They're going somewhere, and we're trusting them as we follow them there. It's why there is such importance in what we might think of as even the smallest role in which a person is leading another person in the name of Jesus. Whether that person's teaching a Sunday school class to kindergartners or whether that person is 
um, standing on a stage at a pulpit, preaching out of God's Word, saying, this is what God's Word says, and don't take it any other way. There's a lot of weight to it because we believe that these things are a matter of spiritual life or spiritual death. And because of that, I think that I find nothing more aggravating or infuriating than seeing people who clearly sort of misuse and abuse that. First, that is the reason why whenever I'm staying at a hotel, which means I have cable, because I don't have cable in real life, I will always eventually, as I'm flipping through the channels, get stuck on a televangelist. Because they, I have, find this sick entertainment from watching these uh, people that I've sort of grown up watching and going, uh, I know... And I feel like I've always had this sense that this isn't really how it's supposed to be. Many, many, of the, many of the televangelists, not all of them, of course. But those who are wearing expensive clothes and who are asking for money all the time, probably not a good sign, right? And, um, and there's something about the, I guess you could say the hypocrisy of that, especially when they're talking about Jesus. Because when you open the Bible and you look at what it, what it looked like for someone to be a leader in the church, a disciple of Jesus, even somebody God used in the Old Testament, you find people who don't look a lot like those guys. There's something about hypocrisy when it comes to people in these kinds of positions that just drives so many of us crazy. Maybe it's because you at some point had been in your life led astray by something like this. Maybe you know people who have. Maybe you have uh, susceptible or sort of even more sort of gullible people in your life or in your family who you're like, I know for a fact that they've gone down this road, they've given money, they've done this thing, and I don't believe that it's going to the right thing, to what this person's saying. This person is fundamentally misrepresenting at the very core what it is that they're about. This issue of hypocrisy is one that we can get very fired up in the church, uh, about in the church just as much of outside the church, because it is in the church that we make claims about uh, the, our intentions. We're, that we're doing the right thing. We're teaching the right thing. In fact, what we have brings life, and, and anything else really ultimately leads to death. So as we say those things, if we don't live those things out, if we don't uh, live ways that are consistent with those things, then people see that so often as hypocrisy. And I've, ne- I've rarely met people who will accuse themselves of hypocrisy, right? It's always something that's easy to see in other people and other leaders and things like that. And this morning, as we look in 1 Samuel um, to our third uh, sort of portion of it, which is at the end of chapter 2, uh, and if you want, you can turn there in a Bible, it's Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2, and uh, we're right after Hannah's prayer that we looked at last week, we're looking at basically a contrast between the, the good leaders, or the good leader who's coming up, who's being raised up, and really much more of the story is devoted to the bad leaders, these priests, the sons of Eli, we, we read about, we hear about. Now, as much as it's easy for us to get upset and angry at these people who seem to be representing themselves as something that they're not, I think the truth is that many, many who you could accuse of hypocrisy and are guilty of it are not doing it 
as intentionally as we would often think. That there are probably many people out there who, who do believe that what they're doing is right, even though maybe they know that it doesn't line up with what the Bible says. And you go, well, that doesn't make any sense, right? Why would somebody believe that? Why would they do that? To know God is real, but to not believe in the way that Jesus calls us to live can lead to some very unhealthy, messed up ways of acting and living. And you could kind of sum all of them up in basically the end justifies the means, right? There are many people out there with good intentions saying the end itself justifies the means, the way at which you arrive there, because the stakes are so high, right? We're talking about spiritual things. We're talking about eternal life. Then whatever it takes to build the kingdom, to get the people in, to keep the ministry going, whatever it is, it's worth it, whatever it takes. And as much as it's easy to see these things in other people, it's hard for us to see them in ourselves, right? This idea, for example, my, my belief in God makes me right, and, uh, and because of that, everybody else is wrong, and getting into a pattern of seeing everything that way, right? Uh, somebody who says, well, I, I have spiritual truth, and other people are maybe in the darkness, and so because of that, everything I think, everything I believe, everything I'm naturally inclined to do is going to be the right thing, and probably what other people feel inclined to do is going to be the wrong thing. My status in the church makes me better, and it makes other people less. My good behavior, my good works, my good things that I do in the name of the Lord excuse my bad behavior. The thing I'm doing for the Lord is so important that it doesn't matter how I do it. And as easy as it is to think that these things only apply to the lives of people in leadership, the truth is, rarely will we look in at our own lives and ask ourselves, have I not thought these same things at, from time to time? That, that the good things that I do, I'm sure make up for these bad things that I can ignore and overlook. My status and position in the church Maybe, maybe how long I've been involved, how the ways in which I've served, the committees that I've been on, the family that I'm even a part of, or maybe the fact that I've been here for so long, uh, that in some way may, maybe makes me, uh, you know, a little bit more maybe important than other people. This idea that, uh, that what I care about, that what I'm passionate about is so important that it doesn't matter how I go about communicating that or, or convincing other people maybe that it's right. The truth is that when we look at these guys, the sons of Eli, and when we look at Samuel, who really we're just going to get a glimpse of him as baby, basically like a cute, adorable little kid who's like wearing a nice church outfit, and you're kind of supposed to look at it and just go, oh, Samuel. Yeah, he's going to do great things one day. That's, we don't get to see too much more than that, but uh, as we look at Eli's sons and we look at Samuel as he even begins to develop in his life, uh, we're not really just talking about the pastors, the priests, the leaders, because of the calling that God's given us. If you turn to verse 12, it starts out, and it starts out pretty rough if you're Eli's sons. Uh, pretty, pretty rough. First uh, Samuel 2.12 says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Ouch. Okay. 
Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was being boiling, was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. You guys know we do this here. You know, we have like a, like a potluck. You kinda, I kind of cut in. I grab something. I go, it's okay. This is for me. I've been here for a long time today. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So what we're reading about here is the act of giving ritual sacrifice, which is arguably one of the most important and familiar things that these priests did. And Eli's sons became priests because they were his sons. And we're reading that these guys are evil. And one of the clearest ways they're evil is uh, this system that was designed to uh, feed them, uh, to give them sustenance so they didn't have to worry about going out and having food and, and, and earning money by doing other things. They could focus on their ministry as priests. They would simply go in as the meat was boiling and they would take some out. And so there was this system that God had proposed that had worked out and the idea of it was that it was fair and, um, and yet what these men did was not even they themselves. They sent their servants to go in and to then start asking for meat before the whole process began. And it's exactly what it looks like when a slippery slope happens and you go from what God asked the people to do, told the people to do, to this weird perversion of it in which you basically have guys saying, hey, I'm here early, I'd like the best meat, we're going to take it, have our own barbecue over here, thank you very much, this is all fine. And the people say, well, can't I, I mean, aren't I supposed to be sacrificing this meat? Isn't this supposed to be an offering to God? I mean, I'm not really supposed to give God Uh, I'm supposed to give him my best. And so uh, if you take something before God gets it through this sacrificial process, then then what does that say, you know? Don't worry about it. If not, I'll take it by force. And, And it says as a result, in one of the last verses here, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Their behavior had grown so um, sinful, their perversion of what God had called them to do over time had become so perverted that it says simply that their sin is very great. And this is not a surprise because this is a truth about what happens when people are in these kinds of positions. We, we would say that for those who have been given authority and, and leadership and influence over people, whether it is influence and leadership over a family, over a relationship, whether you are, again, a person who is called to disciple another person, to shepherd another person, to teach and lead another person, but clearly it's holding this sort of highest standard, it seems, for these, these priests, these shepherds who are the bridge between God and men, And it's clear that there is a tremendous amount of reward and honor that comes from this. Who wouldn't want to be a priest at this time in this culture? 
It was a pretty great lifestyle. You didn't have to worry about how you were going to earn your living. You had tremendous respect. You got to do things that no one else got to do. You were a part of the closest thing to a royal family that there was at the time. There weren't a lot of downsides, it seemed, to being a priest. There was tremendous reward and honor that came the higher the stakes went. It seemed like the more influence, the more people, the better it was. And we understand this in our world because this is really, honestly, how we see people in leadership, right? We go, uh, the, the more someone grows and develops as a leader, the more influence and authority they have, the greater their life is, Right? They make more money, probably. They have more people that love them and that follow them. You know, my son is like at this point where he's like, why wouldn't anybody want to be the president of the United States? And I'm like, why would anybody want to be the president of the United States? Have you seen pictures of those guys? Like, just look at the pictures, right? The, like, four-year shift. That's what happens to a person when they become the president. This is something that we don't really have to think much about, the, the tremendous honor and reward. But, but beyond that, it, there is the spiritual reward that God says comes to those who uh, do these things in his name, who want to bring the good news of the gospel to people's lives. You do that knowing that there is a tremendous good that is happening, and the honor in it is immense. There is no life lived with more purpose whatsoever than the life that is lived for the gospel, than the life that is lived by a person saying, I am bringing the good news of the gospel to another person, no matter who that person is. And the more of our life that we give over and say, I am not here for me, I am here for the people around me, to grow in Jesus. The more that we look at our lives that way, the greater the honor and the greater the reward. If nothing else, being able to look and see the lives that are impacted as a result of that. This is the easier one for us to get. And, and, and the truth is, uh, it is, there is this reality that, that, that the more responsibility, the more great the stakes become, the more things could kind of go one way or another. Well-known pastor Tim Keller has this quote that resonates so much with us on staff. We talk about it. He says, ministry will make you a better Christian than you would have otherwise been or a worse Christian than you would have been. That perfectly sums up what it is. To be someone who says, yes, I will take on that responsibility. I will do that thing. I will get up all the time and I will talk about how great Jesus is, how much I love God, how great he is. Because what if you don't feel that way all the time? What if you start to wonder about that and doubt that thing? What if you aren't always? What do you do in those moments? Do you develop a sort of a, a facade? And if so, ministry has caused you to become a worse Christian than you would have otherwise been. Now, it's not the ministry that causes it. It is your response to those things. But this is a reality we see, right, on every level of, of leadership and influence with people in our lives, right? Right? Uh, you could say the same is true of parenting, probably. Parenting will cause you to be a better person than you would have been or a worse person than you would have been. You're like, how is there that first version? It doesn't seem to me, just wait, you know. 
It will, it will, it, and it actually will do that often by bringing out those things in you that make it feel like you're a worse person than you've ever been. And then God refining and working on those things in you and you seeing what it is to give your life to others and to another. We see this a lot more easily than we see the alternative. And the alternative is what we see here with Eli's sons because greater also is the sins and the punishment. It says their sin was great. The things they did were on a scale that the average person in God's kingdom was not doing. Why? Because they had greater honor. They had greater influence. They had chosen to represent God in this way. And so what we see is that the stakes are higher. Greater is the good that can come. And greater is the sin, and we will see ultimately the punishment that God brings down upon these men. Because the truth is that uh, no one who forsakes God's name, no one who lives this, this life of hypocrisy ultimately even seems to get, or it seems so rare that someone would get to the end of their life on this earth and not have already suffered from the wreckage and the destruction that that truly brings. Then what comes is the spiritual destruction and wreckage. This is a sobering reminder of with all the good that is there as we continue to like step into influence with other people in our lives, as we take on authority, as we, as we, as we uh, put ourselves in that position. And it is, it is a sobering reminder to those of us who have who have accepted the call and placed ourselves in this position, that it is not just more good and then God's okay with all the other stuff. That greater also are the sins and the punishment. This wonderful pastor, he wrote this like 400 years ago, Richard Baxter. He said, as you may render him more service, so you may do him more disservice than others. The nearer men stand to God, the greater dishonor hath he by their miscarriages. You're like, what? That's 400 years ago. It's actually pretty good, considering 400 years ago, that that makes any sense when you read it. He says, he says um, in his book to pastors that he wrote so many years ago, um, as you give him more service, you put yourself in a position to do him greater disservice by your words and your actions and your deeds. That the nearer men stand to God, the greater dishonor he can also have by their mistakes, their wrongdoings. Don't forget that in what you do. Tread carefully. So we read on in 1 Samuel what happens next. Oh, wait. All right, so I forgot about this slide, and now I'm going to talk about this. So I'm still working. I'm still learning how to use slides, okay? So everybody give me a break, all right? The fact that I didn't make up a book of the Bible this time, that's a big step for me because I accidentally did that once. I just thought a person's name was a book. I, why am I even reminding you of that? Because I shouldn't be. You've all forgotten about it. Now you haven't. Okay, so you, you're, you're hearing a lot of this, and you're probably thinking at this point, that's great, but I'm not in that position. I've not placed myself there. I'm not that person, and so why in the world are we talking about this? And uh, the reason is because uh, you may be surprised to know That while the priests were a few people in the Old Testament, and while the priests were a few people before this other leadership came along, that the way that we are described 
in the New Testament is as all serving the function of priests because all have been given the great commission by Jesus and all of us are now bringing that good news. We've all been called to this high calling. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are this royal priesthood. He has called us. All the same language we use to refer to pastors and professional ministers and people who spread the gospel. Peter says here, in this passage that, 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 that many of us have heard many times, that you are also called to serve in that capacity. And if that's true, then in the same ways you ask yourself, as I go out and I live my life, and people see me as an ambassador for the Lord. What is it that they see in the life that I live? And, and the more that people see that I am, you know, representing myself as this person, how are my actions lining up to that? And am I really doing what it is that God wants me to do? So this does actually apply to all of us, even not in positions of leadership. So greater are the sins and the punishment, as well as the honor and the reward. Man, there's so many slides. Okay. 1 Samuel 2, 22 through 26. You go on. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil doings, dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good. Uh, it, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So at this point, God had already decided, I am going to punish these men with death because of the way that they've forsaken this place, this privilege that they've been given. They're going to suffer. Eli comes to his sons, and he's been hearing about the way that they're living. They are sleeping with, uh, it says, women who were working, just sort of serving outside um, of the temple, out in the courts of the temple. They were completely unashamed with the lifestyle that they had. And the reason, you, you read about this, and you go, how on earth could these guys, like, did they not? I mean, we're talking about they, they heard about God, like they knew about God, right? They knew what he would do, what he could do. But they made this fatal mistake, it seems. And, and the mistake was that they believed, yes, we're holy men. We're holy people. We're set apart. But that they believed that that thing was, was given to them, that title, for all of the wrong reasons. And that was shown in the way that these guys lived, the way that these guys did what they did. Eli even comes to his sons. It's interesting, commentators note on this a lot. It's like a little tiny point, but they point out that when he comes to his sons, instead of referring to them as priests, he simply calls them my sons. And the reason that's significant is because he himself cares more, it seems, that his sons are a disappointment than he does that the priests are not doing their job. It shows that he himself has taken all of this as sort of a family thing and has lost sight of the fact that there's this whole nation of people that are being influenced by it, right? And rather than come to them and say, you know, he does make some points to them about how serious it is to sin against God. Greater are these things that you're doing 
he still seems to see this as like a family affair, something he, he pleads to them and says, come on, as my sons, I'm your father, do this, think about this. We read in contrast, Samuel. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. There, that's Samuel, right? Come on, that looks great, right? He's a young man who is growing up in the Lord, and of all the things to talk about, they are talking about an outfit that he wears that his mom makes for him. So random, right? But not random. What you see here is the reverence of the family of this young man. And you see the way that they take even the details of what he's wearing so seriously. Why? Because they believe that the holiness is tied up to much more than just the position that is given that these men have. Holiness isn't a title, it's not a reputation, and it's not a last name. These men made the mistake of believing that because they had the title of priest, they were automatically holy men, and everything they did was okay. They believed that they could just sin, and that was okay because we're priests, and so it actually kind of works out fine for us. They believed that because you had the right title, that made you okay with God. Certainly seemed to work that way with people. Or maybe the reputation, maybe the things you've done up to a certain point, or maybe uh, the reputation of the people that you had trained and grown and learned under uh, was the very thing that your holiness is wrapped up in. Or simply the last name. How, the idea that, uh, that a person would come from a family that is so spiritual and so religious and so respected and so uh, admired, or a family that it seems is chosen by the Lord, and because they come from that family alone, they are holy, and everything they do, it's okay. Now, we don't think in such extreme terms now, but we can understand, I think, how easily we see people make this mistake of, of, of thinking. It's just these things that the holiness is tied to. And yet Samuel, he does not have the title. He does not have the last name. He does not have the reputation. He doesn't have any of those things. And yet he still strives to be holy. Why and how can he do that? Well, it seems like by what he's wearing. Holiness is actually something that is lived daily. To be set apart for God is actually something that is lived out in some of the smallest things that we do. The boring, consistent, mundane things, we would say, that we do each day. That is how a person lives as one who is set apart to be used by the Lord and for the Lord. When an understanding of holiness was that it was all these big things then we can see how people would get derailed into this terrible, like, uh, slippery slope of bad behavior and understanding and ways of, overblown ways of seeing themselves. 
Samuel's mom made him the outfit to wear each year so that he could wear it, not because they want to look the part and it doesn't matter what he's like on the inside. It's because to them, they're showing an attention to detail in the things that God said he cared about. I think it's likely that the Eli's sons didn't wear what they were supposed to wear. I mean, I'm sure they probably wore whatever gave them some sort of respect with the people. But there is something about this, this truth, this idea that, that holiness is found in our attitudes towards even some of the smallest things. Now, a person could go totally crazy with something like this and say, uh, uh, prescribe maybe the most legalistic way that you could possibly live, right? And say, well, then you have to follow every possible rule you could come up with. You have to be better safe than sorry in every situation. You have to, you know, abstain from everything all the time in every situation in every way. And that's not what holiness is. Holiness is a person who consistently is saying in the way that they go about living their lives, the way that they go about thinking and letting the thoughts run through their head and feeding into those things or denying them, the way that they act on the impulses and the things that they have, and understanding that I am one who is seeking to live in a way that is holy for the Lord, set apart for the Lord. And that will be done in the little things. It won't just come from the title, the background, all those other things that I have. So you see here that these, the stakes are, are higher. The, the, the ability to do good and the ability to do, uh, to do wrong are magnified, you know, in, in the more people have this influence. Kind of, like a, kind of like a doctor, you know. If you want to go into the medical field and you say, I'm going to start out by becoming a school nurse, right? Uh, it is unlikely that you would, uh, you know, lose a patient on the average day, Right? because of maybe like you not doing your job well. Um, I'm sure it's happened, but it's unlikely, right? And yet, as you probably were to move your way up in intensity in the medical profession and become a neurologist or a neurosurgeon or maybe a heart surgeon, uh, with the great honor and responsibility comes the weight and the ability to also do great harm. In the same way, we see that holiness can be sort of misunderstood the more influence and ability people get. But it doesn't change what it is that we're called to live for, which is holiness, separation for God, being called out for God in even these small things. First Peter speaks to this, saying, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So uh, the response, you know, to this idea of we are being called out as priests, then what do we do? We are holy. How are we holy? In our conduct, not just in our word, not just in where we attend church, not just in uh, the, the things that, that we say about ourselves, but in the way that we actually go about living our lives day in and day out. You then read about the consequence of all of this. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, Phinehas or Phineas. I like Phinehas. Some people like Phineas. Shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. So ultimately what happens is a, 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 it says a man of the Lord, which is basically a prophet, comes to Eli and he speaks to him later on here in the, in the chapter and he gives him the bad news of God's punishment that's going to be uh, poured out upon his sons. He says, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest 
who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. He's prophesying this priest who will rise up, Samuel, who will come, and it will ultimately lead then to even a king. He is telling this man about the things that are going to happen. And, and what he's also doing is he's basically cutting out this guy's family line. And he's saying, now we're going to start with Samuel. And as he does this, he changes what it even means at the time to be someone who's called to be a priest. Ultimately, for somebody to be in the Lord's service, they have to be called and we often associate and use the word called in like all these variety of different ways, but it's come to mean something very different than it meant in biblical times. We would say, you know, a person is called, or they feel called, or they've answered the call. And a lot of times that simply is just, I decided, we decided, it seemed good to me at the time. But this idea of being called is a, is a huge concept in the Bible that we have, like, don't have the time to get into in detail. But the biggest difference is that there's a difference between God's call for us to do something and our desire to do something. There's a difference between God calling you out of the life you would have otherwise lived and you saying, you know what, I'll bet if I do these things for God, it will lead to a better life for me in the end, which is ultimately kind of us choosing something out of our desire. And in the very same way, the people in leadership, that the priests and pastors and these, these men are called out by God to do this thing, in the same language we read about, we, we read that language in 1 Peter, we read that we are called, that by hearing the words of the gospel, that this calling has been given to us as well. And because of that, what that means is that you were going to live this life where everything that you got and had went to you and things being better for you. And then God's call came. And God's call, he called you out of that and he said, you are my child now and I don't only call you to be a part of my family, but I call you to do this good thing, this good work for me as my servant. And the way you usually knew that God called someone and that they were responding to the call was that their life got harder. It wasn't that it automatically got better. So this is very different from our understanding of what it is to just, you know you, you know, you accept Jesus and then you choose to live well because it makes things go better and then life gets better and everyone looks at how much better your life is and they say, wow, I want that life for myself. But that isn't really what we see in the Bible. And yet we still see the Holy Spirit empower people in such a way that the church explodes in a good way. That, that God's people spread, that his name is proclaimed and goes throughout. Why? Because even though suffering and trial come, those things show that these people are truly called to do this thing. They must believe in this God. They must believe in these things they're doing. They must believe in this person they're sacrificing these things too because they get no benefit from what they're doing. In fact, I'm often seeing how it's making their life harder, and yet they keep doing it with a sense of joy and fulfillment. Why? Uh, because they're answering a call, not just because this happens to be to them, what leads to the best life, just like something else leads to that for me. The truth is that all of us are called to live 
as priests. And yet what we see here is we also see this case study of what it looks like when those in positions of leadership choose to simply take comfort in the title that they have and the reputation they have and the lineage that they have maybe. And to say those things alone set me apart and so the end uh, justifies the means. The good work that I'm doing, it's so important that it doesn't matter how I do it or who I am or the way that I am or the way that things go from here. And we see here that God is making it very clear to his people that's not right and he's correcting it. All of us are called to bring the gospel to other people. I was talking to a couple this last week, uh, Wayne and Judy Jones. And I was talking to Wayne. I was at his house looking at his trains with my son. It's incredible. Anyway, uh, try not to get distracted. Think about the trains now. I was talking to Wayne, and he was telling me about how he met his wife, and they, uh, he couldn't believe that she liked him, and uh, I could relate to that. And she, I mean, not, not that I don't like, I don't think he's likable. It's, it was more me saying, I, I know how that feels. So he said a couple months after they were dating, she said to him, she said, there's something I need to tell you. I need to tell you that the most impo- single most important thing in my life is that I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and he's my savior. And he's like, what? And he literally, he said, he said, like Jesus, like Christmas, like from Christmas and Easter, Jesus, what? He like had no understanding of what she was talking about. He thought it was the craziest thing he'd ever heard. And he said, ultimately, she led me to Christ, shared the gospel with me, and, he, and I remember him specifically saying, I n- hadn't heard a word from a pastor, hadn't heard a word from a preacher, hadn't, hadn't read anything in the Bible up until that point. This person brought the gospel to me This person was a bridge between me and God. And there were things that I saw in that person's life that showed the truth of the things that they believed. And as we're talking, and he's into his 80s now, and it was when he was like 30, so I think he's probably hung in there, you know. It wasn't just, you know, to get her to marry him or something. We, we so often lose sight of the importance of the testimony that we have for others. And the truth is that the vast majority of people in our world will not walk in the doors of a church like this and sit down and expect to hear the gospel from the priest or the leader. The vast majority of people will not ask to join a church small group, will not show up at a VBS, or will not go to an Easter Sunday service. The overwhelming majority of people in our world must be reached by people. People who respond to the Great Commission and say, I see the calling that God has given me in my life. And as we do that, we recognize that it requires a life of holiness. We don't do those holy things because we try to earn something that way. We do those things because we want for people to see the goodness of this God and because we love God and know the joy that is found in living for him. So as we go throughout Samuel and we look at what it means for these priests to do what they do, we also see and ask ourselves the question, what does this mean for the calling that God has given each and every one of us in our church, a royal priesthood, a people that are called to do this together. Let's pray. Father, it is so easy to take comfort in 
the fact that we're already here, God, the fact that we have already found this place, are sitting in this room, have heard the gospel, are familiar with the Bible, and to think, that's it, it's good, I'm done. Father, would you help us not to make the same mistake that these priests made? Would you help us see as we go throughout Samuel the great honor that there is in being a bridge to other people for you, God, whether that's one person or a whole group of people. And by the end of this, would you fill us with such an overwhelming desire to be a light that brings your light, you into the darkness that we cannot help but serve as priests ourselves, God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.